Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Lord God, as we uh, open your word and as we reflect on your kingship. Lord Jesus, I pray um, that you would speak to us, and that you would remind us of the comfort that your kingship brings, but also its challenge to us. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Welcome. My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. Dave um, is unfortunately away for a funeral, an unexpected funeral for a friend, so do be praying for him and uh, for his family as well. Today is Christ the King Sunday. You see the white banners up there and over there. Um, it is the last Sunday of the church calendar, the last Sunday of the liturgical year. Next week, we have Advent, and it all begins again. This uh, way that the church has come up with to mark time. Um, and we mark time around the life of Christ. So Advent is the season of anticipation on two levels. One, we anticipate the coming again of Jesus, but we do so by, in a way, putting ourselves in the position of Israel as they were longing for the, the coming of the Messiah, the son of David, which we'll talk about in a minute. That's a season of anticipation. Christmas is a season of celebration because Jesus has come. Epiphany is a season where the character and nature of who this king is is revealed to the nations, to the Gentile and the world. And then we move into the season of Lent because the centerpiece of Jesus' life is his passion. And we prepare ourselves in a season of 40 days to move into his passion his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then we have the great 60 days of Easter, this long season where we remember that we are people of the resurrection. Season of Pentecost, when Jesus the King gives us his people, his mission, and we've been in the season of ordinary time, which is focused on the ministry of Jesus. When we look at the parables and his teaching and his miracles and his healing, and we see what it is to follow Jesus in a day-to-day moment-by-moment moment way. And Christ the King is the capstone of all of that. Christ the King is basically 
a three-word summation of the good news of the gospel. Why is the good news actually good? Because this one, Christ, is the king. So I want to talk about why that's good news. And I know it's a holiday week. I know you're thinking about which sides you're going to make and maybe about your Aunt Linda's food allergy that you have to navigate and who you don't want to sit by at the Thanksgiving table and whether or not you'll actually find a turkey. So I'm going to make things easy on you today. We're going to go preacher mode classic today. Three points. They all start with the same letter. You're welcome. So I want to talk about the comfort of the kingship of Jesus, the challenge of the kingship of Jesus, and what was my third point? The character of it. Comfort, challenge, character. We begin with our Old Testament passage, which is a prophetic declaration that God is going to keep his promises. This is the comfort of the kingship of Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise, this Old Testament promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. God delivered his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. He brought them into a land, and in time, he raised up for them a king, King David. And he made this unbelievable promise to David. He made a covenant with David and told him that one of your descendants will rule and reign on the throne forever. This is the Davidic covenant. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that there's a point where they are completely kicked out of the land. And you wonder how it is that God is going to keep this promise. How is God going to fulfill his covenant? How is he going to raise up a descendant of David as a righteous branch that will rule and that will reign and that will deal wisely? When we declare that Christ is king, we are declaring that God has kept his promise to David. It's worth remembering um, that the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which means anointed one or the chosen one. This language pops up actually in our gospel passage, and we'll get to that in a minute. That was the title for the expected descendant of David who would fulfill this promise, the Messiah. When the people of God talked about a Messiah coming, an anointed one coming, or in Greek, a Christ coming, they were talking about the one who would come as a descendant of David to fulfill this promise. And the thing about David's kingship and the way that it worked in the Old Testament and what it means for us is that the kingship of God's king was always meant to be an extension of his kingship, that this human person was given stewardship over God's people and he was reflecting God's rule and reign in the world. So when this new Messiah came, his job was to do that, to extend the kingship of God in the world. And this is what Jesus does at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. It says, Jesus came and he proclaimed the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. The rule and reign that he's bringing as a king, his character, his nature is good news. Because this king says what he will bring is justice and security. 
that he will deal wisely, that he ex- will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so this is the comfort of his kingship. And this is, even in a democratic society, we still have this longing for righteous leaders, leaders who create an environment in which prosperity and freedom and flourishing are possible. And that is the comfort of Jesus's kingship, that he doesn't just promise these things, but he actually brings them, that he has brought his kingdom and is bringing his kingdom more and more and more into the world through his people. That's us. We're plan A for extending the kingdom in the world. So that's the comfort of Christ's kingship. But the challenge brings us to our gospel passage. If you think about all of the passages that the church could pick on Christ the King Sunday to reflect on the kingship of Jesus, this may not be the first thing that comes to mind. You might go to Revelation, where we have a picture of what we think of as a king. And true, in other years, um, those are the passages. Or Jesus um, judging the nations, or Jesus um, in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. Those are all nice Christ the King passages. This is a much more challenging Christ the King passage because it is Jesus on the cross. And Jesus on the cross is a challenge to all our understandings, all our just base level human instincts about what power is, about what ruling and reigning is supposed to look like, and what a kingdom looks like. So here is Jesus hanging on the cross, and here is a crowd mocking him. Here is Rome crucifying him. Here are people doubting him, mocking him, shaming him. And we are meant to see that moment as him, in a sense, on a throne. That Jesus is, in a sense, ruling and reigning even from the cross because he's showing us how it is that he brings his kingdom. He brings his kingdom through the means of his death. The powers of the world like Rome, like the crowd before the cross, they will always mock the kingship of Jesus. Why? Because it does not look like the power of the world. The power of the world looks like Rome. The power of the world looks like mockery, shaming. It looks like coercive violence. It hangs the sign over its supposed weak enemies and said, hey, here's your king. Here's the king of the Jews. This is what we did to him. We beat him. We hung him naked before you. We are telling you that we're the ones that are in charge and that we're the ones who have power. That's our basic understanding of how power works in the world, is it's coercive, that it mocks, that it shames. And we hear that in the questions of the crowd. Are you really the chosen one? Are you really who you say you are? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Are you not this chosen one? Have we read about some promises? and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all over the Old Testament. Aren't you that guy? Aren't you supposed to bring the rule and reign of God? Why don't you get down off that cross and prove it to us? You might hear in that question, are you really the chosen one, an echo of the question that Satan asked Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. If you were really the son of God, then you would do X. 
you would turn this bread or this rock into a bread. You would use your power in the way that I would expect you to use your power because that's what power is for. And Jesus refuses. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the challenge of the kingship of Jesus. It's because we will always be tempted to think like the devil, (laughs) to put it bluntly. That true power only looks like asserting yourself, of taking what is yours, of thinking that the only way to prove that you are who you say you are is to come down off the cross, call down a legion of angels, to destroy your enemies. But what Jesus understands in this moment and why he willingly went to the cross, why he, for the hope set before him, despised the shame of the cross, as the writer of Hebrews says, is he understands that this sacrifice actually demonstrates what it is for him to be the true king. That he disarms the powers and principalities. He puts them to open shame, is what Paul says in the book of Colossians. That in this moment that looks like defeat, there is victory because Jesus has said there's another way to be in the world. That you don't just meet coercive power with coercive power, but that you can actually undermine it through sacrificial love. That's the challenge of his kingship. The other challenge of his kingship is that our hearts so long for a righteous and good ruler, our hearts so long for people who will bring a kingdom of freedom and flourishing that we will project our messianic hope on leaders. In the political realm, in every realm of life, that this is the person who has the answer. This is the person who has the plan. This is the person who has the policy that will change everything. And that tendency of the human heart to project our messianic hope on our leaders is a perennial problem. It's not just an American problem. It's not just a 21st century problem. It's a human problem. Even when Israel asked for a king, that was their problem. They asked for a king and God was like, you don't want a king? Kings, take your stuff and your sons, and they just make war all the time and puff themselves up. You don't want that. And so they had that ver- a version of that kind of kingship with Saul. And then God raises up another kind of leader. Those are two visions of leadership. So we project our messianic hope on leaders, on different political systems, on, on different ideologies, different parties. It's not a problem of the right or the left only, it is a human problem. And when we do this, in the best case, we end up disappointed. In the worst case, we actually end up enslaved because what we put our worship to will end up owning us. The perennial problem is this desire to go back to Pharaoh, to go back to Egypt to go back to another kingdom that's familiar and we understand its rules. Even if those rules are coercive and enslaving, at least we understand them. And Jesus comes along and says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a bit of yeast that works itself out. It's quiet, it's secret, it doesn't assert itself in the way that you come to expect. That is the challenge of Jesus' kingship. And that brings us to the character of his kingship. Because it's not just what he does and who he is, it's how he does it. 
David said this before, and I've said it before. It's this idea that we don't just want to do what Jesus did. We want to do it in the way that he did it. That's how we reflect the character of kingdom in the world. That's the how. The how of how Jesus brings the kingdom is through self-sacrificial love. It's by diminishing himself. It is by serving. It is by putting on the robes of a slave and washing the feet of his disciples. That's the character of his kingdom, the character of his kingship. Tomorrow night we have our uh, public theology um, at Connie Rosso, and we're gonna be reading this together. I have copies of this if you want it. Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King Jr. If you've never read it, he writes this letter from a prison cell at a critical moment in the civil rights movement when other clergy are um, challenging him and criticizing him for nonviolent resistance, which was at the heart of the civil rights movement. And if you read this letter, you actually get a sense of how Martin Luther King understood this very important dimension of the kingdom of God, is that you don't overcome evil with evil, you overcome evil with good. And that nonviolent resistance was a kingdom witness to a different way to relate to power. And he talks about that in this letter. So even if you don't wanna come tomorrow night, I'd encourage you to read that letter. Um, I'll give you a copy, you can take it with you. The character of the kingdom is the character of forgiveness and mercy. And what Letter from a Birmingham Jail reminds us, and what the Christian church and martyrdom and throughout its persecuted history over the last 2,000 years has reminded us is that we cannot take up the weapons of the enemy in the vain hope of defeating the enemy with their own weapons. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And there's only one person in this whole gospel passage who gets it, other than Jesus. It's the criminal next to him. One criminal mocks, the other criminal understands that something deeply profound is happening. That he's able to see to the heart of things in that moment, and he asks Jesus the thing that we have to ask him and the only thing we can ask him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is the criminal confessing in this moment? He's confessing that this is a true king and he truly has a kingdom. And whatever he understood in this moment, I don't know, but he understood something. He understood something profound that whatever Jesus was, was in stark opposition to the powers that were crucifying him. And that the criminal wanted to be part of that kingdom rather than the kingdom of the world that was putting Jesus to death. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In Luke's gospel, in the crucifixion, we have these pronouncements from Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, which reflects the character of his kingdom. And then this, what he says to the criminal, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. A cross may not look like a throne, 
A ring of thorns may not look like a crown, but make no mistake, when Jesus says this, truly I say to you today, that's a kingly pronouncement. Like a king from a throne making a pronouncement, Jesus pronounces to this criminal, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Truly, when Jesus says this, it is emphatic. He's saying, what I'm telling you is trustworthy and true. It's like when he says, verily, verily, or truly, truly. And the English translation gets it right because it puts today at the beginning of the sentence. Today. Not the criminal saying, hey, you know, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, no, it's today. Today. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's the kingly pronouncement. And again, just want to reemphasize that the how of what Jesus does matters profoundly. What does Jesus do with his power, with his status? He gives them away. He pours out his life for the life of the world. He uses his power to lift up the lowly, to heal the sick, to proclaim the goodness of the kingdom and the year of the Lord's favor. The shape of his kingship is his posture towards those who crucify him, which is, Father, forgive him, forgive them. It's his pronouncement to us, forgive them. It's the invitation to come within his saving embrace. There's a collect or a prayer for mission at the end of morning prayer. We have these little prayer booklets available. Let me just read this collect as a way to end and as a way to remind ourselves of the character of our king, the challenge of his kingdom, and really what he's asking us to do. Because what he's asking us is to be like him. And the only way that we can do that is by surrendering to him. So here's the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. That's it. We surrender to this king. We give our allegiance to this king. And then we ask that we might be like him in the world. What does Jesus do? He stretches out his arms of love to embrace the whole world in his self-sacrificial love that unmasks the powers for what they are, that disarms the powers of the world, that shows that coercive violence is not the only way to be in the world. And then the second half of the prayer, that you would clothe us in your spirit so that we could reach forth our hands to the world in love bringing those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. This king calls us to be part of his kingdom. Not just to proclaim that kingdom, but to enact that kingdom in the way that he did. And we can only do it in the power of the spirit. It's only by his spirit that we can go and be like Jesus in the world. That we can pray for our enemies, turn the other cheek, do all these things that Jesus said that his people would do. Those are kingdom actions. Bless those who persecute you. That's what Jesus was doing from the throne of his cross. 
So why is Christ the King the last Sunday of the liturgical year? I think it's the last Sunday of the liturgical year because it gathers everything together about the nature of Christ and his kingdom and what it means to be part of his people is that he's calling us as our king to be like him, to reflect his love in the world, to do the things that he does in the manner that he has done them. So we go into the next year with that in mind. The beginning is the end, is the end, is the beginning. It all loops with each other. That's the nature of the church here. We always keep those things in mind. We're always in anticipation of Jesus coming back again. We're always proclaiming his death until he comes. We're always saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. Um, we thank you for the character of your heart towards us that when you came into the world, you came quietly that you showed us that there are other ways to be <clears throat> in the world than what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And we pray, Lord, that you would plant that mustard seed of faith that would grow up. Because you say that's what your kingdom is like. So we pray that in each of our own hearts, you would bring forth that fruit of your kingdom. And we pray that St. Bart's would be an outpost of your kingdom. And that we could be a people that don't just say what you did, but do the things that you did in the manner that you did them. And Lord, we confess that we cannot do those things in our own power. So we need you, we need you Holy Spirit to fill us, to give us your peace, your life, your joy, to bear all your fruit in us. We pray that even now you would do that work in our midst and we pray if there are those among us who have not repented and believed the gospel, that even now they would say yes to you. Yes to you, Lord Jesus, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords and who has the name above every name. And it is in that name that we pray. Amen.